0: what's good family welcome back to another episode of reimagining youth work this episode i had a chance to sit down and talk with dr elizabeth santiago who is the chief program officer at mentor the national mentoring partnership elizabeth is a great friend of mine so i really appreciate and value her work but as i went back to actually listen to this interview i was just in thinking about the points that i wanted to highlight for you all i was just i found myself being really struck Um, by how genuine she is, um, by how thoughtful and intentional she is. Um, And I truly respect that that is the approach that she brings to her work at Mentor. What's interesting about Elizabeth's story, and you will hear this, is that she actually dropped out of high school and got a GED. Um, And then, of course, as we talk about in the episode, she ended up going to one of the most elite colleges in the country, Harvard, and got a degree there. She just finished her Ph.D., in education at Leslie University. But she talks about her experience um, being tokenized by a nonprofit organization when she was younger. Uh, she talks about how she learned from that experience, the power of owning her own narrative, her own story. Um, she cautions us against tokenizing young people. She talks about her journey uh, going through higher education, going be, being a person of color um, at an elite institution like Harvard Talks about what it would take to, to help support young people as they go through this. So what I want you to really pay attention to or focus on in this episode um, is the way that she talks about really giving uh, young people an opportunity, a platform, curating space for young people to to share their stories, to own their narratives, um, to reclaim power, uh, and to be able to to fight for themselves, to be able to Fight for their own dignity, right? Um, I think she has a lot of gems to share. I'm thankful for the opportunity to sit down with her. I think you're going to love it. This is Dr. Tori Wieston-Cernan, and you're listening to Reimagining Youth Work. What's good family? Another day, another podcast episode from Reimagining Youth Work. Today, I have the absolute pleasure of speaking with Dr. Elizabeth Santiago, who is the Chief Program Officer at Mentor. Uh, In this role, she's responsible for and actively involved in the management of programs and services for a wide range of stakeholders. Outside of her work with Mentor though, I really want to get into a good conversation with her about the work that she just did on her dissertation, And just her overall thoughts about serving young people who need us the most so welcome to the show today thank you so much this is so exciting for me thank you for having me i'm super excited to talk to you i feel like i really i'm not calling myself a content creator i'm calling i'm calling myself a content (laughs) curator because i've just been finding Ah. good voices (laughs) and making sure that i bring them here on the onto this show
1: yeah, yeah, no, and I we think I think we've just started. And well, first, thank you for being on my dissertation committee. Absolutely. Um, because I think you learned a lot more about me than maybe you had known in the past. So I'm 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 really excited to be able to talk a little bit more about about that personal journey and the work on my dissertation and all of that because I don't think many people know really uh, sort of the background.
0: Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you for being here. Thank you for talking to me. And let's absolutely. start with that. Let's dig into the dissertation. So, oh, sure. can you can you tell us because I know it's 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 intimately linked to your to your personal life. So, you, can you tell us a little bit about your dissertation work and how it connects to your own story?
1: Absolutely, yeah. And I hope hopefully this isn't too of a long too much of a long answer and sort of tangential. But um, I am uh, happy to talk about that. So. Yes, so I have been pursuing a dissertation or working on a doctorate for the last uh, six, seven years, and there were many reasons why I went and pursued that. <laughs> and part of it was really, or most of it was really personal to me. Um, so uh, throughout my life, I, I have been thinking about this idea of voice mm. and who owns narratives and the ways in which narratives are discussed and shared and elevated, and so. Uh, as I've been thinking about that over the years, I've wanted to focus on that topic and young people in particular, those who are most sort of marginalized and right. minoritized in this, in this society. So, I mean, a little bit about why that's important to me is when I was 16, I dropped out of high school and not too many people know that about me, and there are reasons why I don't often share that mm-hmm. little tidbit of information. Mm-hmm. But it's partly that; it's partly the owning of that narrative. Like I own it, <laughs> and I don't want other people to uh, take it and make it into something that it's not. Because um, at at best, people say, "Oh wow, you've accomplished a lot given." where you started right and at worst they say oh see you made it out you know you can Mm -hmm. you know um sort of comparing me to my community members or people in my family and that's always been a really uncomfortable a hard place for me to be because that's just not the story that's not how it went for me so as i thought about that i remember um a couple of very specific things that i wanted to bring up yeah but one is um When I started in this world and nonprofit work, (laughs) I was 19 years old and I had just gotten, um, yes, I had just gotten uh, my GED. Um, I got that. I was about 17, almost 18. And I had to work. I started to work and I wanted to go to college, but I wasn't quite ready. And so I worked for a nonprofit organization that focused on teaching uh, teachers of youth and others who had dropped out of high school. And so we were sort of the professional development arm of, of okay. that, of, of the state. Um, and um, I, they hired me to be sort of like an administrative assistant type person, even though everyone else that had that role in the organization had bachelor's degrees. And I didn't, I had a GED um, and a lot, of, a lot of drive, but uh, didn't have a lot of, of the same sort of skill set, I guess, right. that others did. But they hired me because they wanted that story. They just thought of me as a success story in the mm-hmm. sense that, oh, here she is. She's the population that we're serving. Um, and you, know, we are going to be the, the group that hires her and shows the world that you know we, we practice what we preach. And there's nothing sort of wrong with that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, on the surface, there's nothing wrong with that. But as a young person, you know, in an organization in that position, I always felt like I had to perform, you know, like I had to be that person they wanted me to be Mm -hmm. um, when they propped me up on stage or (laughs) when they asked me to write, you know, for the newsletter about my life experiences. And um, over time, it just became very bothersome (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) to have to pretend or have to be something that maybe I wasn't or I hadn't figured out yet what that meant to me. what being a high school dropout, and I own that terminology, even though it's sort of not politically correct to say that anymore. But right. I personally, I might, you know, that's the terminology I use. Um, and even though that's the case, like I just felt like um, I just couldn't be what, what uh, I felt like I was. Right. <laughs> and I was, you know, learning myself and trying to figure out how I fit into this world, and I didn't fit into this world. And so I always had a sense of, that there was something wrong with me. Um, and I think that that uh, helped, or I shouldn't say helped, that that affected my voice, that affected what I chose to share, right. that affected how I showed up in a lot of ways because I suppressed sort of who I was just because I wanted to fit in or I didn't want to disappoint um, and 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 tell folks, hey, yeah, I dropped out of high school, but I had a wonderful family. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I had, you know, we we hey, we, we might have been poor, but we were pretty strong. Like we were, we always had each other's back. Yeah. My community members were awesome. Like my neighbors where I grew up, even though again, we were poor, we we had a lot of assets in the community. The the folks that owned the corner store were my saviors. Like I would go in there, and they would spend time with me after school. Like I just remember all these wonderful people in the community and so when I Enter the nonprofit world, and you know I just felt like my story wasn't connected um, or uh, what they wanted to hear. Right. Um, And so, long story short, uh, I when I started teaching myself and when I started in youth work, I was always very clear: like, no, you you own your story, (laughs) whatever it is, it's yours, and I'm going to help you cultivate it. I'm going to help you learn the techniques to write. And I became a writing teacher, and I was um, uh, excited about that, uh, excited to work with young people um, who had potential um, to share whatever it was they wanted to share. And so um, the dissertation uh, was basically working with um, a group of women um, who had disconnected from school um, and, and, and who were of all kinds of ages, actually. <laughs> like, it ended up being, they ended up being a little bit older, right. which was fantastic because there's something about um, education, owning your story, that, that restores your dignity. It doesn't matter how old you are. Right. But if you finally get a chance to present yourself as a whole person, your own story, your own narrative, you're able to um, achieve whatever you want in your life. Yeah. And I believe that strongly. That's why I studied writing. I studied um uh, voice. I studied narrative. I studied critical pedagogy uh, because I wanted to have the words to back up what I believe to be true. And I wanted to have the knowledge um, to back up what I believe to be true. Um, and so that was important to me. Yeah,
0: You uh, raised a couple of good points. All the points were good, but some that I sort of pinpointed. One was about owning narrative, right? And yeah. I just think about the work that you and I are both in and how we tend to prop up. We have this sort of token way of highlighting young people, right? When it benefits us, when it benefits what we want. Um, I want you to talk more about why that could be so harmful for a young person because Mm -hmm. sometimes I think we do it and even with the best intentions, right? It's like, well, we just want them to be able to tell our story or we're being more youth-centric. The best of intentions, right? But then the other side of that is that it's really about sort of capitalistic gain. You know, how can we look good in, f- in front of funders and all that? But what we don't ever ask in between all of those things are like, how is this impacting the young person?
1: I think that's it's such a great question. Um, and I think I reflected on that a lot of, because I was that young person. Right. And I didn't in some ways. um, was really learning about myself and my story and trying to figure out where I fit in. I didn't have the critical uh, awareness of the world um, at nineteen twenty, um, and I didn't know that me sharing my story was sort of exploitative in some ways. Um, and I so I went along with it, and it, I always felt really weird about it. Um, so I, I, in my work, you know, I. Want to not make young people feel that way. Really? I want to listen to what they have to say And I want to be open to that versus trying to fit into some kind of um, You know narrative or some bigger gain of of You know what the funders want to hear which you know I know and I get it like I've been in the nonprofit world for t- over 20 years. Now. Yeah, and I get it I get it. I get it. Um, but at the same time, it's like I don't want to do harm <laughs> to you know a young person's confidence or sense of self worth. So there's a way to do this with dignity again. I have to use that word and right. and just to say, hey, do you want to do this? Um, and and to uh, educate, hey, you know this is why I'm doing it. Being transparent about it, you could help with that. Um, and I've never had um, a young person just say to me, no, I'm not. You know, or um, I, I still feel exploited or anything like that, I think it's just important to be transparent and know that, you know, we're we're kind of all in this together. But I, I think that's, it can be so harmful. It took me a lot of years to move out from under that mm-hmm. and feel like I could talk about my story again in a way that didn't feel like I was being exploited. So I would say just be very careful about that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So after after getting your ged and then after working in the nonprofit I- industry you went to some of the top schools in the country
1: <laughs> yes i i you know people would joke <laughs> that uh you know from ged to harvard or you know and that that was sort of um interesting to me it's very interesting to me um yeah so i i uh, got a bachelor's degree in creative writing because i wanted again i was very committed to telling stories mm-hmm. and I loved people in my community, my family, and they were some of the funniest people. Like they made, you know, lemonade out of lemons. <laughs> like they just really like, even some of the things that you think are so, uh, I don't know, other people would look at and go, oh, that's a little, little sad. It's like, no, actually we had a lot of fun. And so I wanted to just tell those stories and bring, you know, humanity to, to people who um, just often didn't get that chance. Mm-hmm. Uh, or that those opportunities. So I, I got a bachelor's degree, a bachelor of fine arts in creative writing and um, got uh, actually sold a young adult novel uh, when I was in my early 20s, um, which awesome. never got published. It's a whole long story, but it was about a young boy who lost his brother to violence, to gang violence, mm. and sort of was processing that. And that's, um, you know, an, an important story to tell, just stories we don't normally hear about the, the things that young people are going through right um and so uh i beyond that i i uh, after my I earned bachelor's degree i went to work for a publishing company <laughs> which was kind of funny like it was sort of a dream come true but then it wasn't because <laughs> publishing is some of the like hard you know one of the hardest industries industries to work in yeah especially if you're not like from a certain background and <laughs> absolutely <laughs> but at any rate um I uh, was able to go to Harvard uh, Graduate School of Education um, to earn a master's in education because I was really curious about how people learn. I went from writing myself, mostly like, okay, well, how how can I teach others to do this? Because, again, I know so many people have stories to tell and maybe just not the mechanism by which to do it. And so I thought writing was the way to do that. So I earned a um, master's degree in in education from Harvard, and that was a trip. (laughs) That was a trip. That was a trip. That yeah. messed with my head for a long time, I think. Because, again, when I was talking before about trying to be something that I wasn't, mm-hmm. I think that place really uh, amplified for me what I wasn't. Um, and I wasn't yet ready to own what I wasn't, you know. Um, yeah. And so yeah. Harvard just kind of, uh, while while a good experience, I think uh, kind of kept me, kept my voice silent for a while, probably longer than I sh- it should have been. Um, and so you. when I went to earn a, or start my Ph.D. program, I was in a different place and so I was ready to kind of tackle those demons and tackle yeah. the, the um, you know, the ways in which um, not being able to share my story had affected me. So yeah.
0: I, I've been talking um, to quite a few higher ed folks and. All of them have been talking about, they're folks of color, and all of them have been talking about their experiences in college. And Uh several of them talked about just trying to get through their PhD programs and how difficult that was because they didn't see themselves there. Yeah. And I'm thinking, again, the work that you and I do on the nonprofit side, especially in mentoring, we do, there's a lot of college access programming. right? There's a lot of trying to tell young people, get through this so that you can go off to college and almost as if college is like sort of the the dreamland. That's right. And then they get there and there's a whole set of other issues that they have to deal with in college.
1: That's right. You're right. Um, It was fascinating to me. So my niece who's at NYU and she's a, she's a uh, sophomore now. Mm -hmm. She uh, wrote this whole long post on Facebook that actually brought me to tears because it was about how, She's just so tired of being a young Puerto Rican woman, uh, the first to go to college in her family, um, in this classroom, trying to uh, prove that she belongs there. And what brought me to tears about it is that I felt the same way. And here we were, like, I've got, what, 25 years on this (laughs) young lady, and we're still in this same situation. And I pulled off, uh, when I was at Harvard, I, I wrote a rant poem. Um, about the privileged Harvard elite mm. it was it's kind of an angry poem <laughs> and I was upset because I was I remember sitting on the train I was coming home from a class and I had been dismissed because I felt like folks uh, wanted to talk in theory about what it was like what's it, what it's like for poor people mm. but no one wants to hear what it's actually like and <laughs> right. and like. Yes from someone who who lived it, you know? And so, you know, part of my frustration there too, I mean, just as an aside, I wanted to earn a PhD because I thought to myself, now dismiss me. Here I am, like now I come from that community <laughs> and now I have a PhD, you know, what you got now? Yeah. You know, like because, yeah. but that's an aside. So I wrote this um, rant poem because I had been dismissed, somebody, and then somebody had said what I had just said in a way that was, I guess, more palatable for the people in the classroom. And then they got applauded and the teacher was, you know, it was that sort of you know thing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I was so upset, I um, wrote this poem and uh, on a whim submitted it to the students of color journal. And it was the first annual Harvard student of color journal. <laughs> and so yes. um, I didn't hear anything about it until I got an email or something saying, uh, we've selected your poem. And I thought, oh, wow. Okay. Yes. <laughs> I better revisit that poem, right? And I go into the office um, to get when they tell me the, the book is ready. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a printed book. I go in to pick it up and I say my name and the whole room turns around and starts to applaud. I kid you not, Tori. And um, you they start s- to That's applaud and I, and I just looked around like, what, what is this? And then They told me when I opened the book, the poem that my rant poem had been used as the opening to this journal. Wow. And with a dedication saying that the students of color at Harvard who were part of this journal committee wanted to thank me for my bravery in saying what they felt um, was, you know, their situation. Yes. And so this was, again, I mean, I graduated from Harvard in 2001. Here's my niece at NYU in 2020. Mm-hmm. And we're still, I mean, I and I sent her the poem and she called me and said, oh my God, this is exactly how I feel. So it was, it, so, you know, long story short, it's, this is just sort of, I mean, it, this has been an ongoing issue for young folks who go into um, these classrooms that aren't always welcoming to them yeah. or following an antiquated kind of, you know, old school model or mentality that they just don't fit. Um, And so it's, it's, it's uh, disappointing that we're still in this place. Um, Even though, you know, many of us know, it's just not the best way (laughs) to welcome, you know, all students into the higher ed classroom.
0: Absolutely. So all of this, you've gone through in terms of your educational process and triumphed. And now you are running or helping to run a huge Mm -hmm. nonprofit organization that influences a lot of folks, not just young people, but adults in this field. So connect your background and and these experiences that you've had with the work you're doing at Mentor.
1: Yes. I I, thank you for that because (laughs) I, uh, there is such a deep connection. Um, So, I spent a lot of time teaching, I spent a lot of time in education, I spent a lot of time curriculum, doing curriculum design, and then I was an instructional coach for a while. So I would go into classrooms across the country and watch teachers teach and give them feedback on their curriculum and instruction. And the thing that I saw most was the lack of connections teachers had with their students. And I don't mean to oversimplify, there are just a lot of things going on, obviously. Yeah. But I, if I could boil it down to one thing, I just saw that time and time again, and it led to so much, so much miscommunication, misunderstanding in one school in Indianapolis that I was in. Not to call them out, it, it resulted in a school resource officer coming into the classroom and pulling a fourth grader out. Um, things like that that I just I. Mm. And I got burnt out with all of that and I thought to myself there's got to be a better way (laughs) There's got to be a way that it's not just about curriculum and instruction. It's not just about You know this what happens in the school building, but there has some fundamental sort of relational thing Understanding that's just not that's missing and I uh, in my work in my previous nonprofit at jobs for the future um, I was building pathways programs for young people. So they would go from high school to college to workforce. And I started building my own ways of including mentoring, uh, whether it is whether it was, you know, sort of one-off kind of in, in the realm of career exploration sort of right. discussions um, or actual, like, you get paired with someone in high school who's gonna follow you throughout the pathway. <laughs> um, and I would start to research and research um, the best ways to do that. And I came across a mentor and I was excited about that because yeah. I thought, wow, well, there's some, there's a name to this. There's an organization behind it and seems to understand youth in a different way than maybe even educators do, because right. I'm always surprised by how little youth development and education kind of, <laughs> you give me that look, you know what Tell I mean? Tell me right? about it. Yeah. <laughs> They, they just, they don't always mesh. So um, I was excited when an uh, uh, opportunity opened up to be the senior director of programs at the time. And um, I, you know, came on board about five years ago um, and then was promoted to chief program officer about three years ago. Um, and so in my time um, at Mentor, I really uh, focused on bringing in the, uh, the best ways to support our youth. Um, And the best ways mentors can support youth, uh, whether that is just being trained and understanding. (laughs) Um, Youth bring their whole selves, or youth should be allowed to bring their whole selves (laughs) to any kind of mentoring uh, situation or any situation in life. And how can mentors just support that um, in and of itself? And so uh, it's been a really good learning experience for me because a lot of the mentoring principles relate, you know, relational, relational principles, um, was what I was looking for, uh, when I was in the classrooms with teachers and, you know, thinking that, you know, how, how to best, um, connect, uh, with even, even from an adult perspective, how to best connect with teachers when I was giving them feedback, sometimes even difficult feedback True. and that relational, um, component. I mean, it just permeates everything I do. And I didn't have a name for it, right? Mm-hmm. When I was teaching, I was always like, tell me, you know, talk to me. What's going on? Like, share with me what you want. Just or write it down. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, record something. I don't care. Like, just give it to me in any format that you want. I just, it's always about um, the individual need. Right. And and then how that works in the collective. So mentor just gave me language to, to put toward what I was doing. Um and I feel like in my position as chief program officer for large, you know, a fair- you know, a fairly, um, uh, maybe not as large as other nonprofits, but a good size nonprofit um, <laughs> that's national in mm-hmm. scope, uh, that I feel like I have a real opportunity to affect change um, in a different way than I might have with the education system. Mm-hmm. And the education system, you know, maybe I'm just a little burnt out with it still, um, but I and I and I love teaching, so. It, that's a hard one to say. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I don't love the system exactly. <laughs> in which you teach. <laughs> I think you can relate to that. Absolutely, but, I can. <laughs> um, but mentoring provides some some freedom, let's put it that way. Although I feel like as a field, mentoring has evolved, mm-hmm. um, but it still has some evolution um, to go through.
0: Absolutely. And you're doing mentoring in your workspace every day. I mean, I know you're very yeah. humble, and so you probably wouldn't say this, but I know that the folks who work with you really respect you and look up to you and look for your guidance and your advice. So you're Thank mentoring you. in more than one way.
1: Thank you. I Actually, I, I, I feel like uh, lately <laughs> I have become much more aware that how mentoring shows up in my role as a supervisor, You know, mm-hmm. as a member of the leadership team um, of, a, of an organization. Um, and I think that's important. I think that we have to, you know, also honor the folks that we work with by listening to them, by allowing them to bring their whole self into the workplace, even though that's always, you know, sometimes frowned upon. But but it's okay, one on one. Like, tell me what's going on. It's you know, especially now, um, especially during this time, mm-hmm. to just act as though business as usual is, is uh, to me it's just not the way that that I would want to manage anyone yeah. or. Uh, work with anyone or you know, love anyone like I just it just is not the right the right
0: way to go right and I feel like this is an appropriate time too for me to say that I, you've you've done a lot of mentoring work with me which I value and oh, appreciate cool. just cool. as a woman of color and then you know who has to navigate the nonprofit industrial complex yeah. and knowing someone like you who has the institutional knowledge and resources who can sort of guide me. Um, and give me advice has been something that's been really important to the work that I've been able to do. So thank you.
1: Thank you for saying that. And I and I actually mean right back at you because I think uh, one of the mis- I'd say mistakes I made over the years was just not having a group of people that I I call I could call allies or I could call friends or I could say Oh my God, today was so hard because I'm just tired of being a woman. Some days <laughs> so I'm just tired of being you know like having to try to figure out like. Did that happen because I'm a I'm Puerto Rican? Did that happen because I'm a woman? Like, there's just, and I didn't have the, the, the ally um, allyship that I needed, and so I appreciate you so much for that because um, we're we're in this together, and you know that I know that, and so I I do appreciate you saying that. Thank you.
0: Thank you. I appreciate you. So I have a question around the work that you're doing and how it helps to reimagine youth work. So you know, the concept of this podcast is. Trying to get people to think about what's next. Yeah. Um, so, talk to me about your work and how it helps us to begin to reimagine youth work.
1: Yeah, I, I um, appreciate that question, and I, I, I actually, you know, want to highlight you because I do think that when I read critical mentoring, I, I know like many people, um, many people that I've talked to, and, uh, um, it, it just sort of changed my my viewpoint. Um, it, it showed me what mentoring could be, and it showed me what youth work could be. Um, and it gave me, again, like I, I, I might have said this a, a few times already, it gave me the language I needed yeah. to kind of talk about what youth work could look like. Um, and so I 100% feel like youth work needs to be youth-led. Um, and I feel like it needs to be community-driven, um, mm-hmm. and whatever that means, um, uh, Folks in the communities, our elders just need to be respected. Their voices need to be brought to the table. Mm-hmm. Um, just because someone doesn't have opportunities or means, uh, doesn't mean they don't have solutions for some of the things that we're trying to figure out. Right, And that has to be part of what the future of youth work looks like. And as a plug, <laughs> my own bias, is that it has to be narrative focused. I mean, yes. I feel like the more and more we can elevate stories um, in different stories. The more we have a better collective understanding of of the world and of people, mm-hmm. um, and I think that the more we can have narratives be part of youth work in some way, uh, I I would be you know one hundred percent for that. Um, and, and I'm also thinking about that in our work at Mentor. Like, how, how can I incorporate more of that in the work that we're doing? Yeah,
0: absolutely. So now we're talking now in a strange time, we have coronavirus, we have, which is, you know, not only the pandemic side of it, but just, just sort of the epic failure around our society and the most marginalized folks and how we organize and take care of each other. Um, To me, I'm not just pointing to one source because I see it in different, in different levels you know, right now I actually saw you post that you ran with, ran for mod today. So we, you know, that's a a trending hashtag. We just have so much going on that's impacting young people. And as a result, impacting our work with young people. That's right. Do you have anything you want to offer around that? Just, I I mean, I just want to, to establish some space just for, for sort of processing, you know, all of the work that that comes with having to sort of navigate all of this craziness that's happening?
1: Yeah. I mean, first I'll say um, that the, the run with Ahmad today for me was about solidarity. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just so it's like, that's, yeah, like that's, that's something we needed right now. Um, And it needs to stop. And even though it felt like it was a small thing, it, it made me, it actually was very profound for me because I just sort of felt the, Collective solidarity mm-hmm. um, at, at that moment. Even though I was running by myself, it I, I felt part of a community or something larger. Um, and I think that's important. And I think that's exactly um, what I would say about the time that we're in as well. Um, we we can't forget those connections and the relationships. Um, and we have a responsibility. Me as an individual, I realize my sort of responsibility when. I was standing behind my son, getting him set up for his virtual class and noticed that there were three students that my son normally hangs out with who were not on, on the screen. And I asked him about it afterward and he said, oh, they haven't come the whole time. And I was like, okay, all right. And so I could have just said, okay, well, well, and walked away, but for me, I was like, no, no. What can I do? <laughs> because it's it's not just the school's issue; it's the community's issue, right? It's a, we all have to stand up and do something. And um, in the same sort of solidarity um, that I talked about early, earlier. And so I looked up, you know, one of the student's parents. He's a manager at our local Walgreens. And found him. <laughs> just said, "Hey, do you need some help? Like, what's what's going on?" Yeah. Uh, I found him by text. I wasn't out there trying to <laughs> get too close to people during this time. But um, and he he said that since he had to work, his son is with his grandmother. They just they're just not online. Yeah. Okay. And so um, I offered to do sort of a virtual kind of playdate with his son and my son. And then they did. And my son kind of got got him caught up on some Ooh. things. And and then the next zoom meeting you know he was on it
0: yeah
1: and it 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 felt like okay so now i'm i feel responsible for <laughs> for you know other other children and yes. i should have been all along and i think that's a, an important lesson for all of us is that we have to take care of our young people um they're they i
0: mean that's a be cliche but they're our future like yeah. we've got to take care of them yeah and they're all of our responsibilities that's right yeah, absolutely. that's right Again, you know um, that I work with a lot of practitioners, a lot of trainings and workshops. Yes. And so I've been asking folks for strategies. What kind of strategies would you offer people, teachers, mentoring folks, um, for making their work more critical, for Mm. aligning their work with some of the concepts that we've been discussing?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think a lot of the things that uh, we've already talked about, or I was talking, I've talking about, uh, or I've talked about fit here as well. Um, but I also think it we have to, as individuals, do our work. <laughs> I know you talk about that, and other people have talked about that. Yeah. But if you know, you, you have to be open. You have to listen. You have to not try to impose your own belief system or what you think that child needs, <laughs> or, um, you know, we, we have to listen and we have to be open to it. And um, you know, I, I mean, I guess I, I would offer that, like as we think about what the future holds for youth work and it being youth led and uh, community involved, we, we have to practice that. We have to practice those beliefs. Um, and it starts with us as individuals um, doing the work doing the hard work, sometimes really looking at yourself and saying, wow, I, I didn't know I had that, right. <laughs> um, and I'm going to work on that, you know, <laughs> because right. that of, often surprises me sometimes when things creep up and it's, like, wow, where did that come from? Okay, that voice came from somewhere. Mm-hmm. I'm going to work on that because that's not, you know, part of the values that I hold. Or if I'm talking to a young person and they say something that I may not necessarily agree with or, or I'm just whoa, okay, so how do I step in responsibly so that I don't suppress and I don't make them feel bad? And and anyway, so all those things come to mind, but I do think that it, there has to be, because I'm a program person, <laughs> I'm going to talk about training. Like, yes. yeah, there has to be some training. And like, <laughs> and we have training like that at Mentor. We're working really hard to, you know, look at the individual, look at the community member, look at ways to access, you know, for them to access some of the, you know, just the there are three things that you can, do to stand up for a young person or Hmm. to show them that they you care about them right you know we're trying to distill it in in such a way so that anyone can access it um anyway so uh, I think there's that's what I'll offer there
0: yeah for sure you talked a little bit about training and a little bit about self-work you know tell me how you feel about this because I feel most of my youth work, and I think this is ironic, but most of my youth work has been with adults, right?
1: Mm, yeah, <laughs> because, right, right.
0: Because I'm right. working with young people <laughs> and I'm hearing what young, what young people say and what they need. And then I'm trying to help adults navigate that. But the self-work is what, even though I say it, you just said it, I hear a lot of people say it. Right. I feel like it seems to be one of the most difficult things to do. Why is yeah. it so hard for us? <laughs> I can't, <yeah>, you know... <laughs> I, I, that's a great question.
1: I mean, it's about changing mindsets. Like if I go into the sort of like learning theory, yes. <laughs> you know, it's like once you become an adult, it really gets a, just harder and harder to change a point of view, a worldview, a mindset. It mm-hmm. really is hard. Um, and then, of course, like when you talk about issues of uh, racism or, you know, um, issues of oppression in that way, and someone is acting in a way that is like that. Yeah. It's shameful, right? So they don't wanna also do the work because or, or admit that they have maybe had, you know, some issues here, um, because it's 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 painful um to admit that, especially if that's not how you see yourself, right? Right. So I, I mean I don't I don't know what to say. Like I've been like I, I was an adult educator for a <laughs> long time too. And so and <laughs> I remember working with teachers and trying to like, okay, how can I say this (laughs) without having them just sort of kick me out of their classroom and tell me never to come back. You know, it's, it's, it's hard, but um, it's hard.
0: Yeah. It kind of opens up the discussion too, about just, you know, who we're going to let have hands on our babies. Right. Right. Um, Cause I think that becomes the next level of like, if you cannot engage in this training and in this process that we all need to undergo, right? Um, you can't, you can't be with our babies. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's a great. I mean, like we talk about sort of mentor training and sort of <laughs> like thinking through recruitment processes, right? right. Um, and if you do a recruitment intake form of some kind, and there are questions about worldviews or you know, I, you know, right. however to bucket that, yeah, and they are red flags. <laughs> That person should not be a match to a young person. I don't care how long the waiting list is, right? Because that's probably more harmful than, than if you didn't do that. Um, and so, yeah, those types of things we have to be accountable for um, as mentoring professionals.
0: Absolutely. Before I ask you my final question, do you have anything that you wish I had asked? Do you have anything that you want to offer that, that we didn't go over? Uh, Um,
1: I don't think so. I'm thinking, feel like, and I have stickies all around my <laughs> myself because you get, you sent me the questions and I was just jotting notes around. So I'm just looking around my, um, my stickies and I, I don't think so. Um, okay. Except to reiterate, you know, a lot of the things that I said that I, I, I think it's important for us not to uh, force our young people to perform mm-hmm. or uh, to to um, tell them what their narrative is. Right. I mean, I'll just, continue to say that over and over, that'll probably be on my tombstone.
0: (laughs) That's important. (laughs) Yeah. That's absolutely important. And I think the way that you tell it in relationship to your own, in your, in relationship to your own story, um, makes it even more significant, makes it, gives it a greater impact, right?
1: Yeah, I hope so. And I, I, even though it's been, uh, for me, it's been a long journey to kind of own my story, um, and own my narrative and, and, feel good about all of that, um, I'm finally here. And I and I feel like, um, you know, earning this PhD for me is just like, okay, I'm, I'm ready for the world. I'm ready for y'all. Bring it on, you know? Um, and I think for my, you know, sort of life's work, if I could get a young person <laughs> to not be my age and when they're trying to like wrestle with all of this, like oh, yes. they could do that at 18, imagine the <laughs> the like you know um you know potential of of the world right yeah so.
0: absolutely so my final question for you and the question i've been asking of every guest in your freedom dreams what does the future of youth work look like Hmm.
1: yeah the future for me has to be it has to be youth led um we have to take a backseat in a lot of ways, the adults, um, which you do a lot of already. Like you're already <laughs> doing a lot of what the the, the dream work is um, in a lot of ways. Um, but you know, we live in a reality where sometimes you can't always do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so in my dream world, the systems and all the other people would come along and <laughs> understand, yeah. you know, the or or hold. Dear, the same values um, that, that we have. Um, and I just don't know how that would happen, but um, hey, this is my dream world. Yeah. So uh, youth-led, community-focused you know, narratives, uh, I, I really do think that the stories, the more and more we elevate our stories, the better we're able to understand uh, the multitude of realities that are out there.
0: Thank you so much for talking to me today.
1: You're welcome. Thank you for having
0: me. I appreciate you. For the rest of y'all, I have been talking to Dr. Elizabeth Santiago, Chief Program Officer at Mentor. She gave us a lot of really good information about working with young people and especially about the power of narrative and young people owning their narratives. I will make sure to have links to her bio And the episode notes, I will also include a link to Mentor's website and any other information that she might want to share with y'all. See you again in two weeks. In the meantime, keep doing the good work.